0: At every turn, he's praying as he begins to focus on what he believes God has called him to do. The task at hand. The word that Nehemiah uses is the word work. used over and over again. The work that the Lord had for him to do. So in chapter 1, he learns about this. And then he sets himself to pray. In chapter 2, he's standing before the king Artaxerxes. He serves the king as one of his cabinet members. He is the risk taker of risk takers because he is the cup bearer for the king. He's the one who's going to test the king's wine to make sure it's not poison. And if it is, well, Nehemiah is gone. But if it isn't, then Nehemiah has an audience, a direct insight and connection with the king of Persia. So in chapter 2, as the story unfolds, as Nehemiah records what had transpired, the king, seeing that Nehemiah's countenance was sad, and it was down, and it was mournful, he asks Nehemiah, why are you so downcast? Why are you mourning? This was not permissible in the audience of the king's. You remember Daniel himself was warned, not, or I should say Mordecai himself could not come into the precinct of the palace wearing sackcloth and ashes when he was mourning over the intention of Haman to destroy the Jewish people because no one could come near the king looking downcast. Nehemiah is just naturally being who he is. He isn't putting on airs. He's deeply disturbed by the state of affairs in the land that God has given to his people. And in reflecting upon it, he is saddened. And the king says, why are you so downcast? Now take a look at the beginning of chapter 2. In verse 2, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And notice how Nehemiah responds. He says, I was very much Afraid, Because he knew he could not come before the king looking this way. And for the king to point out his countenance and him being saddened, he was fearful of what this might be for him. But Nehemiah spoke up. Look at verse 3. He says, may the king live forever. Consider the tact. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins? And its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to him, what is it you want? Isn't that remarkable? That the king would say to his cupbearer, a Jew, a Jewish slave, no less. What can I do for you? What do you want me to do? And Nehemiah now is given the green light to share his heart. Then, the king, then I prayed to the God of heaven. There's our second reference in the second chapter to him praying. I find that to be very moving, don't you? That here the king says, what's on your mind? What can I do for you? If it was me, I would just take out my list. Well, I was thinking about things, and, you know, this is what you could do. But his first response is, and he tells us, that he prayed. Now, I'm certain he didn't go off into the corner and said, King, I'll be right back. Let me just pray about this. But right then and there, in the small moment that he had, he turned his attention to God and he asked the Lord to give him the wisdom to speak his heart and to touch the king's heart that it might be changed, it might be turned to be sensitive to what Nehemiah was going to ask. And so in verse six or so, the king with the queen, oh, excuse me, then it says that I prayed, and the king answered. If it, and then I answered, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take? When will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. This is also pretty remarkable. We talk much about faith and trusting how God would lead. Remember, Nehemiah had been praying for four months. Chapter 1 tells us that it, he was first informed of the situation in the month of Kislev. That's around the time of December. Now, in chapter 2, it's the month of Nisan. That's around April, March, April or so. So four months have transpired since Nehemiah first heard of the conditions in Jerusalem. Now for four months, he's been praying and the door is open for him to share. But consider the tact with which Nehemiah speaks to the king. He first of all says, may you live forever, O king. He honors the king. He speaks to him respectfully. The second thing that he does that I think is very interesting is that he then says to the king, the city of my forefathers. The city is in rubble. Notice he never says Jerusalem. It's almost as if he doesn't want to raise any red flags. He doesn't want to raise any kind of hurdles that the king might have to deal with. So rather than naming the city, which earlier in the book of Ezra, in the book of Ezra he had already issued an an edict that the city would not be rebuilt. So rather than raising this right up into the front. Of his mind he simply says the city of my forefathers is down but it never says Jerusalem I think that's kind of interesting as well but here's the third thing about Nehemiah Nehemiah had been praying for four months but that's not the only thing he had been doing he had also been planning he had also been strategizing he had also been thinking about what he would do if given the opportunity to speak to the king notice he's ready to make certain requests to the king. He says to him, first of all, provide me with letters of transport from Persia into the land so I can get through the checkpoints from here to the land of Israel. Nehemiah had already been thinking, if the Lord touches the heart of the king so that he permits me to return to help my people in the land, what would I want the king to do for me? And he already has been thinking I need some letters to get me through the checkpoints and he also asked if a letter could be sent to that one who is overseeing the king's forest so that he could he would have permission to have lumber to do two things check it out in chapter 2 he tells him he needs the lumber to rebuild the gates and then he's a very practical individual he says I need the lumber to build me a house where I will dwell So Nehemiah is already thinking, I'm going to need to return. When I return, I'm going to need a place to stay. I'll need lumber to build me a home. So he tells the king, I need letters of transport. I need permission to have lumber. And the king says, it is granted. And then he gives him something he didn't ask for. The king then tells him that he would give him an escort, a military escort of soldiers and cavalrymen, to escort him to the land that he would arrive safely. Talk about the sovereignty of God. Talk about God answering prayer. Talk about prayer that is united by, with faith and common sense and wise thinking. Faith is never just throwing your mind to the wind. Never are we asked to believe that which is unreasonable. What we are asked to believe is what God reveals to us in Scripture and what we can scrutinize and understand. Maybe not completely, but to a large degree. That's why Isaiah the prophet says, let us come together and let us reason together. Let us talk this through. God is not hiding himself from us. God is not hiding his will from us. God is trying to make himself known clearly and perceptively so that we would respond to him this week we received a phone call from a fellow from Brooklyn New York his name was Chaim at least that's the name he gave us he told me he was an Orthodox Jewish individual somehow he came across our website and got our phone number and called and asked for me particularly I spoke with him for about an hour or so on the phone At first, when he told me that he was an Orthodox Jewish individual, my antennas immediately went up and said, okay, is he really searching, is he being honest, or is he sort of attacking, scrutinizing, and is this going to be a waste of my time? But as it turned out, he was an honest seeker, at least that's the best best I could tell, that he was asking honest questions. And he asked me how I was so certain that Yeshua, Jesus, was the Messiah. He told me he understood Hebrew. So I said, could you hold on a minute? I ran to my bookcase and got my Hebrew Bible out, you know, and I'm hoping to help me understand it, you know, clearly. So I'm reading the right verses because, you know, some of the verses are different. So I had like three Bibles in front of me, the Hebrew text, and English, you know, and I'm, and I'm going, go ahead, and what else, you know, and I'm going like this. But Chaim is talking with me and he's asking me. And he said to me, how do you know Yeshua is the Messiah? I said, well, you know, there's no scripture in the Hebrew scriptures that says, look for Yeshua of Nazareth, who, you know, will be the child of Mary and Joseph and et cetera. And that's the one. It's not quite that detailed, but it's remarkably detailed to where I said to him, well, the scriptures begin to narrow down the field. They tell us that he must be Jewish, right? He's the Jewish Messiah. So that excludes a lot of people right there. You know, Jewish people make up less than one half of 1% of the world's population. So we don't have to look too far. So that narrows down a little bit. And then from there, in the first century, when they knew tribal identification, they knew that this one, the Messiah, would be from the tribe of Judah. So they knew they had to look for the one who was from the tribe of Judah. They knew that he would be from the family of David. That might have been a little trickier. But then I said to Chaim, the scriptures also tell us the time when we ought to look for his coming. And he said, he interrupted me. He said, what? He said, it doesn't tell us the time. I said, Chaim, if I can show you a passage where it tells you the time, will you promise me you'll read it? He said, yeah, I've got my Tanakh here right now. Go ahead, tell me where it is. So <laughs> that's what I ahead. So I said, turn to Daniel chapter 9. And he opens there, and he's reading it, Sheva Shevaim, you know, and we're going through the Hebrew uh, passage here. And I said, look what it says. There would be 70 times seven, or 490 years, 70 sevens, and then the Messiah will be cut off. Look at this, Chaim. It tells us the time. It tells us 470, if my math is right, I'm not certain it is, but 470 years from the time when the commandment was issued to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Now, the reason I was up on this was because I just finished teaching through the book of Daniel here. And then at the MJAA, I was teaching on Daniel. And now I'm in the book of Nehemiah, so I'm like ready, you know. So I said, Nehemiah gives us the command to rebuild Jerusalem. We got 490 years. That puts us in the first part of the first century. Yeshua or the Messiah had to come during that time frame. He's looking at that. He's looking, and I said, look at one other thing, Haim. You checking this out? He said, yeah, I'm looking at it. It also says he'd be cut off. It says the Messiah would die and be cut off. And take, check this out, I said. And it's not for himself. It's not due to his own sin. It's for the redemption of his people. That's why the Messiah would come. That one passage tells us why he would come, when he would come, and what he would do when he came. And so Chaim says to me, yeah, but it doesn't say he would be God. And you believe he's God, right? I said, Chaim, I'll show you a passage where the Messiah is said to be God. He says, no, that can't be. Our people were told not to worship idols, not to worship anyone other than the living God. And I said, but if Yeshua is God come in the flesh, then you're not worshiping an idol. You're not worshiping some other God. You're worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're worshiping the Jewish Messiah. And he said, well, where does it say the Messiah would be God? I said, take a look at Jeremiah chapter 23. And I hear the pages go. And I said, look at that passage. In chapter 23, we're told the name of the son of David who would reign over the people of Israel, who would reign wisely and would do wonderfully for his people. And this is the name by which he shall be called Adonai Tzedkenu. The Lord, our righteousness. Now, I said I deny, but if you look at the text, it's the sacred, unpronounceable name of God. I said to Chaim, that's the only place in all of the Tanakh where someone other than God himself has the sacred name of God. Who other than God himself can bear the sacred name of God? If it said Elohim, Sid Kato, okay. If he said I denied Sid we'll go with it. But he doesn't say that. He says the sacred name of God Sidkenu, the Lord, our righteousness, who could be a son of David and be called the Lord. And he was sort of like quiet on the phone. And I said to him, I said, Chaim, this is why I'm so certain Yeshua is the Messiah. And what Yeshua was asked, what must we do to do the will of him who sent me, he said, believe on the one, what must we do to do the will of God? And I said this to Chaim, what you must do to do the will of God is not the 613 commandments. I said to him, there is no one who obeys the 613 commandments. He said, oh, I can show you thousands of people. I said, no, you can't. He said, yes, I can. I said, no, you can't. (laughs) And I said, I'll tell you why they can't. Because there's no temple. And because there's no temple, they cannot offer the sacrifices for any of the festivals. That means when you celebrate Pesach, you're not obeying the law because you're not sacrificing a lamb. When you celebrate Yom Kippur, you're not offering an atonement because you cannot offer the sacrifice. He said, yeah, but we do other things. All I'm saying is you may be doing other things, but you're not obeying the law. He said, well, then nobody can obey the law. I said, that's exactly what I just said. (laughs) I said, that's what I said. I said, we agree. So the question stands. And I said to him, and remember, in the Hebrew scriptures, you will not read the laws of Moses. You will read the law of Moses. It's one entity made up of many parts. So if you break one of its parts, you violated the whole thing. That's James's point. It is the law of God, not the laws of God. It's not the Mosaic laws of God. It's the Mosaic law of God. And thus, however, we may want to break them up. You want to call them ceremonial. You want to call them civil. You want to call them moral. It doesn't matter. It's one law. All the laws are equally binding and important and revelatory about the holiness of God, the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, and the sinfulness of humanity. Not just Israel, but all of humanity. If it was the Hittites who took the law, they too would have been found to have been disobedient. But we were fortunate that the law was offered to us, the Jewish people, and we now become the example, the test case of the need that all humanity has for the Savior and the living God who alone can save us by his grace and by his grace alone. So I said to Chaim, No one obeys the law, no matter how much they try. And thus Yeshua was asked, what must we do to do the will of him who sent the Lord? What must we do to do the will of God? He said, believe on the one whom he has sent. So I said, Haim, when you believe on the one whom he has sent, that one has come to fulfill the law not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And as a consequence, he fulfills it for you and for me, and thus we can stand righteous before God. You know, I was so excited to talk with him, and I wasn't like this. You know, this is sort of a monologue. I was doing a lot of listening, but not a lot. You know, a lot, but not a lot. A lot, But But no, I was listening a good deal. And I asked him, I said, Haim, call me anytime. And anytime you want to talk about this, I'd love to talk more, more with you. You know what was so neat about that? It was so refreshing to share my faith with someone. You know, when was the last time I did that? Had a real honest conversation about who the Messiah is, why I believe in him, what he has done for us, how he has done it. You know, it brings life to the soul and to our hearts and to our minds. And Nehemiah, was revealing the same thing, and here's what it's all about, uh, because time is afoot, but here's what it's all about. This word that comes up over and over again in the book of Nehemiah is a word that you and I despise. It's a four-letter word that we would not want to utter any more than we have to, but it comes up over and over again, and it's the word work. That's the word, work. Nehemiah says that he sets his hand to do the work, and I cannot come down. Look through the book of Nehemiah over and over and over again. It's work. Sharing our faith is work because we would prefer not to. We just want to enjoy our faith. We say we want to, but this is the thing about actual and stated values. We say we want to share our faith, but it's not real, because we don't do it. So in reality, we say the right things, but we don't do the right things. And one of the problems with that regard is because we don't appreciate what work is all about. When God created mankind, he set us in the garden, check this out in chapter 2, to work the garden. Work is not the result of sin. Work is the result of God's creation. Work is extremely valuable. Just as I shared our faith, work really is the, is the uh, ex- exhibition of energy for a purposeful result. That's what work is. The use of our energy, the exertion of our energy for a specific purpose, a specific task so that when I take a shower and I'm just singing, that's not work. It's just weird. You know, that's just, that's just bad, you know. But when I'm sitting in front of the television, that's not work. That's just, you know, sitting in front of the television. But if I'm singing in the shower, so I'm ready to sing in worship, that's work. Because now it's purposeful. If I'm sitting in front of the tube, Like tonight, we got the history of the Bible thing going on. Five hours. There's two hours tonight on the History Channel. If I'm listening to that so that I can be encouraged in my faith, learn more about my faith, that's work. It must be the exertion of energy for a particular purpose and result and task. When we do not work, we feel meaningless, purposeless, and... No, uh, no cause for being. Is that not true? It's when you wake up in the morning, you say, I've got a job to do, and you do it. You come back at the end of the day, and if you reflect on it deeply enough, you say, I've completed something God has called me to do. It doesn't matter if you're a street sweeper or whether you're working with computers, you're a doctor or a lawyer, whatever you happen to be. Work enables us to be creative like God was created in creating the world. Work enables us to use our minds to do things purposefully and meaningfully. Work enables us to think of others, not ourselves, because what we would do would benefit somebody else. Work shows us what God has done to make provision for us, because at the end of the day, and we get our paycheck, God has provided for us work is a good thing it's a thing that separates us from all the other animals and those who have worked in scripture work hard think of nehemiah here's a man who was a government leader in the very palace of the king and could have relaxed there for the rest of his life but no he was going back to jerusalem He's going to build a home that he would stay in. He would work on the walls, putting stones side by side to see that the walls would be built. There is no work that is menial or beneath us. If you feel that way, you do not have a clue or understanding about what it means to be created in the image of God. Because it doesn't matter what you do. It's that you do it to the glory of God. And Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king, put stones in a wall to the glory of God. You take a man like Moses, who had worked hard leading sheep to graze and to drink. Talk about boring. But that was his life for 40 years. And if you think of his entire life of 120 years, it was spent in the deserts of Egypt, media, and Israel. Think about that. Never sailing. (laughs) I can't imagine that. But always in sand and dust and heat, except at night when it would be cold. He worked hard. Think of the people who complained to him over and over and over again. Think of a man like Paul, who was not only beaten and scourged and whipped and imprisoned, but he worked as a tent maker. That means he took thread and needles and put it through leather in order to put tents together. You think that's menial work. Paul thought of it as the capstone of what he was to the glory of God. He saw it as a means to an end. The end was that he could teach the word of God, plant congregations. But what did he do? He worked so that he could do those things he wanted to do. You take a man like Yeshua. He was a craftsman. We say he was a carpenter, but the Greek word is he was a stone mason. Talk about someone who worked. He worked so hard at his craft he could fall asleep in a boat in high seas and in a storm and nothing could wake him up until the disciples nudged him and shook him and made him get up. Why? He was exhausted because he taught all day and all night. He traveled by foot. He worked hard. Look at a man like Luke who was a physician. Look at anyone In the scriptures, who are individuals to emulate, they embraced their work with passion, and they sought to do it to the glory of God and for the benefit of others. That's what Nehemiah was doing. When you share your faith to the glory of God, that's work. You better have been prepared. The scripture says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you and to do it with love and with compassion and with persuasion. That takes work to be certain you can do that. If you cannot do it, it is to your shame and to mine as well. And it means that we've not yet grasped the significance of work in the life of believer. I'm a person that loves to give funds benevolently, but I do not like to give funds so that individuals are just enabled to maintain their lack of getting work. We need to be working. And if you don't work, you can't give to help other people. If you don't work, you can't give to support the ministry that's going here or anywhere else God would call. The reason we could support missionaries is because there are people who are working working. And that's why work is so critical, among all the other things that the Bible reveals to us, about doing a good work for the glory of God. Nehemiah said he was involved in a good work and he would not come down from the wall. That ought to be our attitude about whatever it is God has led us and enabled us to do. That's my task. It's sort of like what Daniel said, what does all this stuff mean? And the Lord says, go your way, Daniel. Do your work and serve me well where you are placed. That brings glory and honor to the Lord. It's not only our speech, it's also our actions. Here at Beth Ariel, as I bring this to a close and sort of wrap things up, We are praying and planning how it would be that we would be a greater witness to the Jewish people in our community. And how we can be a permanent witness in our community as well. As I had asked last week, I asked that we be in prayer about purchasing this property. About seeing that a permanent ministry to the glory of God goes forth from this place and outward from Los Angeles and wherever. So I ask that we pray because we're meeting with the owners of the building last Sunday afternoon. Jerry, Bob, myself, Barry. Who else was there? Ron. We were all there sitting around the table with these three elders. Oh, Peter. That's right, Peter was here too. We were all there sitting around these three elders, and we were, I'll speak for myself, but I'm sure I speak for us all, we were blown away by the love and appreciation and support of what we are doing here. We were blown away by it. They said to us, you are a sister congregation to us. You're just not another congregation. You are a sister congregation to us. We would not do anything. To interfere with what you guys are doing in presenting the good news to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We are excited that you are in this facility. And we would not force you out of it. And we will do everything we can to keep you in it. Name your price. Tell us what you want to do. You want a long-term lease? We're in for it. You want a short-term lease? Well, think about it. You want to buy it? We'll consider that. Everything is on the table, and the ball is in our court. I don't think I'm speaking too exaggeratedly when I say that. That means to say, what does God want us to do with this? Do we keep limping along? Are we going to make a stand and say, here is a good work the Lord has for us, and we will do it and not come down? They want to give this building to us. They want us to possess it. They want the Jewish people to hear the good news over and over again. They want us to have an institute program that educates these local churches, that helps other messianic uh, congregations in the area. We shared with them our vision. They said, wow, they were so excited about it. Just talk with us. Let's work together. Let's make it happen. That's what happened as a result of our prayers, We had been planning all along. We had things to share at that point. We said, let's not share anything right now. (laughs) You know, but God is at work. That's really what I want to get across. He is at work and thus we must work alongside him as well. We will have to give generously and sacrificially. We are going to have to look for others outside our congregation who would join with us in this good work and they are there. They want to see our people hear the good news and they want to contribute to it. They want to see Beth Ariel become something that would make that happen. Now, one last story. I received an email from a a girl named, woman named, I guess, woman named Nancy. I meant to bring my phone so I could read it to you, but I forgot. And in this email, she wrote and she said, I Essentially, I just got off of looking at your website, Beth Aria. I don't know where she lives. I didn't ask. But she said she was so grateful, pleased, and overjoyed to see our ministry here. Why? Because she grew up in this church over 30 years ago. She said her father was the pastor. And at that time, the church was called New Hope Community Church. Mary Lou and I laughed because the church we left them back east was New Hope Chapel. We thought, "Wow, is this a coincidence? Is this a sign?" You know, like what's going on? And she said, "But that's not the only thing. I was adopted by this Gentile, non-Jewish Christian family who loved me. And I found Messiah, Jesus, here in this church. And I've recently found out that my mother was Jewish." And to see this group of Jewish people in the church where I grew up and where I found the Lord, she said this, know that you are in a very special place where God's word has gone forth and where God's presence has been a part of for a long, long time. We just don't arrive on the scene." We are part of a history of what God has been doing here for a long time. We're just the next phase of his workings. And what a joy it is to be here at this time, knowing that and working for the future. What will be the legacy we leave? What kind of walls are we going to build here? When our work is done, Will we hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, not only in our personal lives, but also in our congregational life as the people of Beth Ariel. Will we hear those words? I expect we will. If we devote ourselves to his service by sharing our faith with others, if we devote ourselves to his service by building up this ministry, that we've started and that God has blessed and continues to bless. I expect that he will, if what we do here will have an impact not only for ourselves, but for believers all in this area, unbelievers in this area, and who knows where else around the world. We have that opportunity before us right now and for the rest of our lives. I pray that we move forward and allow the Lord to do his work in our lives. Jerry and I had lunch with Larry Poland. He gave me his book called Miracle Walk. I think it's called a miracle walks. And they're all short stories about what God has done, had done in his life miraculously. We were reading these stories. Some of them were outlandish. Such as when he wanted to go on the mission field, and he needed the money, and to the penny God provided him. Some of us have had that experience. It's amazing to read about. He told the story of how he was traveling to South America. And on the plane, he sat next to a, a member of the UN. And he got to talking with him, but never shared his faith with this individual. When he got off the plane, he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, please forgive me. I did not share my faith with this individual. I should have. If I get another opportunity, I will not disappoint you. He began to go through his schedule of speaking engagements, took him into Brazil, into Peru, into Bolivia. He spent something like two or three or four weeks in South America on this speaking campaign. He then got on the plane to fly back to the States. When he gets on the plane to fly back home, the the plane is on its way and then they say, we're being diverted to such and such a city. He thought to himself, such and such a city, they don't even have an airport. They landed the plane on a grass runway. And who pops onto the plane? The plane, by the way, was delayed for two weeks, something like that, because of these international flights in these third world countries at that time. They weren't exactly on schedule. So he had to rearrange his schedule. And who walks on the plane was that man from the UN. He couldn't believe it. He stood up in the aisle. He said, over here, over here, I got the seat right for you. And the man gets on the plane and he said, you know, God spoke to me. And he told me that I would see you again. And that when I did, I had to listen to what you would tell me. So what do you got for me? And he led the man to faith. Is that like wild stuff? You know, that's like crazy, isn't it? That's what I want to experience sometimes too, don't you? But you can't, you can't unless you pray, unless you confess your sin, unless you're ready to go when God opens the door, and unless you go through the door when it's open. I really think the door is opening. Maybe the Lord's saying, what's wrong with you? It's open. I really believe the door is open. God didn't speak to me. I don't have any special things like that. I'm only telling you what I think sort of like what Paul writes, you know. Uh, My opinion, though, is, (laughs) that's inspired, so forgive me. But all I'm saying is, I really believe this is the door the Lord wants us to go through. That's the direction I am heading. That's the direction we are heading, and we should head toward it joyfully. We should head toward it joyfully singing the praises of God for what he's opened up. We have like that man who got on the plane and said, you got something to tell me. I need to listen. This church is saying to us, we've got a building you should buy. You should buy it. That's what they're telling us. I think we should. How is it going to happen? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not asking you to give more. I'm, giving, I'm asking that we give what God tells us to give, as the Lord provides for us to give so that we can give as we are enabled. And that's what we'll tell others, if we tell others. Meredith keeps saying to me, don't tell anyone else. Just let God provide. But that's because she's a person who has faith. So I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can do that. But yes, we're not trying to manipulate anything. We just want to walk with God. And when I read Nehemiah, there's a lot of effort, a lot of work, a lot of sacrifice but also a lot of prayer and a lot of God showing up. And that's what I want to see in our life as Beth Ariel too. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your work in Nehemiah's life and in the people that he worked with, that he partnered with, that he built the walls around Jerusalem with. And we thank you for one another, for our family here at Beth Ariel, And we thank you for this moment in our history, this moment in our present, and what is yet to come in the life of our congregation for the future. Lord, strengthen our faith. We pray like the disciples. Lord, we believe but help our unbelief. Encourage us in giving. We can never outgive you who gave your only son that we would have eternal life. So Father, may we become more and more like Messiah, may we reflect more and more your image, may we work hard, may we work diligently, sacrificially, purposefully, efficiently, for your glory, for your honor, and for your goodness among others whom you will impact by this small work that you have established here at Beth Ariel. We give you all praise, honor, and glory, for we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen.